Hi, everybody. Thank you. Before I tell you a little bit about my research on resource unpredictability, socialization, and warfare, I just want to give you a little bit of information about my own background and how I came to do this research. Um, I actually have a long-standing interest in peace, not in war, which goes back to my high school days as a protester against nuclear weapons and uh, the threat, the so-called threat of the Soviet Union, which ironically uh, seems to have reared itself again. Um, but many of my colleagues, unfortunately, consider that if you're interested in warfare, then you must like it. And I just want to iterate to the contrary. It's something I actually detest. It's really hard to read about. Um, but it is my belief that if you want to do something about any phenomenon that occurs in the, hu in the human condition, you have to do research to understand it in a systematic way. I, I do want to mention briefly uh, some research I did as part of my PhD dissertation when I did field work in, in Western Kenya um, that is relevant to the issue of aggression in males. I ended up doing a behavioral observational study of three groups of children, girls, boys who were assigned girls' work because their mothers didn't have any daughters at the time, and um, boys who didn't do girls' work. I was interested in the origin of sex differences, gender differences, and it turned out that boys who did girls' work, mostly babysitting, were, uh, based on behavior observations, were uh, in the middle between other boys and girls. They were significantly less aggressive, they were significantly more responsible, and significantly less egoistic. Um, and that earlier study, in many ways, influenced my uh, interest and partial belief that so much of male aggression is learned. But for most of my career, I have put my passion really into doing what I call cross-cultural research, which has many different meanings. But I mean systematic cross-cultural research that tries to test hypotheses uh, against data from usually worldwide samples of societies. One of the main ways that this is facilitated is by the database that um, was put together by the Human Relations Area Files. Uh, that's the institution I'm pleased to be president of at the current time. So one of the main goals of cross-cultural research is to systematically test theories against the anthropological record. And theories, of course, are explanations that purport to say why customs or cultural traits vary. Cross-culturalists make the assumption that if a theory has merit, at the very least, the presumed causes and the presumed effects should be correlated. Every society in a cross-cultural study has a time and a place focus, which in my view gives an ethnographic snapshot of the culture at a particular time, at a particular place. Now, in contrast to many anthropologists, uh, most cross-culturalists and I do not assume that cultures are unchanging. Cultures can change very quickly, and you can see that even if you look within the ethnographic record, even over 30 years, uh, you see very different descriptions by anthropologists who go at different times. 
Uh, Cross-culturalists assume that there's heterogeneity within a society, and that's why we're very careful to measure variables for one community, let's say, at a specific time period, and all the variables are measured for that time period. But basically, the fundamental assumption is that if there's law-like relationships between things, any kinds of things, they should hold no matter what time, no matter what place. It should hold in the past, it should hold in the present, it should hold 50 years before, 100 years before. So each culture that's described in a cross-cultural study is not studied for the same time across cultures, and that's because anthropologists go to different places at different times. We just don't have that kind of historical data. But each one has its own focus. So in this research that I'll be telling you about, I start, we started with a worldwide sample of 186 societies. Uh, this, is a, this is based on a sample very commonly used in cross-cultural research now called the Standard Cross-Cultural Sample. It was chosen to be representative of pre-industrial societies. And wherever possible, because it makes research so much easier, we use the Haraf collection of ethnography, now E.E. Haraf World Cultures. So, by society, I do not mean countries. We're talking about groups that anthropologists normally study. So we would include groups like the Maasai, the Somali. Um, in Europe, the rural Irish, not uh, industrial Ireland. But the Balinese, Samoans, Pawnee, and the Aztec, who lived from a long time ago. So the, just giving you an example of the kind of societies that are studied. To uh, do the research, we read reports from observers, usually anthropologists, who lived in the community for a year or more, often more. We look for reports about traditional warfare or the lack thereof for time periods prior to forced pacification, usually by more powerful groups, uh, such as colonial authorities. Now, I should say that uh, I have... A very different definition of, the, of warfare from what Chris Bohm, for example, described, in that uh, we did not make the distinction between feuding or raiding or warfare. Warfare, in our sense, is armed combat between communities, from a community on up. Um, I, we decided deliberately, and by the way, I'm referring to research with my late husband, Melvin Ember. We decided... Um, deliberately not to look at why people said they were fighting. Um, we, what we wanted to focus on was what did people actually do when they were fighting. Um, and I'll tell you why in a little bit. We have reason to think that what people say, because it often doesn't correspond to what they do, is maybe very misleading. If you ask people in the United States, why do we go to war? We say to go to war to make peace, which is the most ludicrous thing <laughs> I've ever heard. But basically, we're using data from other researchers um, for the starting with 186 societies, looking at rating to try to rate frequency of warfare and other forms of aggression, and most importantly, uh, we rated resource problems. Uh, but we were trying to test a variety of theories about warfare um, in, in research which is supported by the National Science Foundation. So we used data also from other researchers 
for the for information on childhood socialization, societal complexity, and other attributes. Now, this is some of this is based on our research, and others is based on other researchers' research. But I just want to give you a picture, cross-cultural picture worldwide, of the kinds of variables that are related to each other. And you can see that warfare um, is correlated with higher higher warfare is correlated with higher homicide, higher assault, wife beating, training children, particularly boys, to be aggressive. Aggressive sports, including sham combat, severe punishment of criminals, and um, I, I know this has become more popular in our society, but uh, cross-culturally, any kind of body alteration which is painful, such as tattooing or piercing, is correlated with warfare. So uh, this raises the question of, is there a culture of violence if all these things are correlated with each other? And if there is a culture of violence, what is, what is the driver of the pattern? Um, I think there are two likely theories. One is that we train, a culture, a society trains boys particularly to be aggressive, and because they train them to be aggressive, as adults, all kinds of aggressive behaviors are exhibited. The second theory would be that warfare is the driver, the central driver, and that it in turn pushes parents to train their boys to be aggressive, and that in turn uh, produces other patterns of violence, some of which are unintended. Now, our evidence does suggest that it's the second theory that has more merit, um, it's a little bit complicated to explain um, some of the reasons why, but I will try. Basically, um, the, the reason why we think there's evidence that socialization for aggression, which is in the middle, is a consequence of war, not a cause of it, is that first, socialization for aggression strongly predicts homicide and assault cross-culturally. But more importantly, uh, a major piece of evidence is that societies that are pacified as of the time of, their, of the anthropologist's study are significantly less likely to socialize boys to be aggressive than societies that are not pacified. Now, one might argue that could it be that the reason that the societies were pacified by colonial powers was because they were less aggressive in the first place and they were more readily pacified. But to check this possibility, we compared societies pacified 10 years before and those compared uh, pacified 30 years after anthropologists were there. And um, both sets were able to be pacified, but socialization for aggression was only lower for the ones pacified earlier consistent with the idea that pacification lowered parental interest in socializing for aggression. Um, I should note, I think, uh, anecdotally anyway, uh, Germany and Japan are very good instances of um, dropping interest in socializing for aggression in boys after being defeated during World War II. So if warfare is the driver, what explains variation in warfare frequency. In our research, we tried to test, we tried to test um, 
theories about conditions which might increase the likelihood of warfare. Uh, those theories briefly are that simpler societies, uh, most the thought was hunter-gatherers, uh, which um, may have less to fight about, uh, and more complex societies, particularly agricultural societies, have, have good, good um, land that might be conducive to fighting. Another theory is uh, punitive or harsh socialization of children, uh, that this may lead psychologically to uh, imitating uh, adults uh, and lead to more violence as adults. Low need satisfaction has to do with um, not having very affectionate parenting and uh, having a, a rather frustrating childhood. Protest masculinity theory suggests that in societies where there's more conflict about sex, sexual identification in boys, uh, they will try to display more hyper-masculine behavior to show how man, manly they are. Uh, some have postulated fighting over women as the main driver, uh, and uh, others that it's population pressure on resources. So our, most importantly, we needed to try to come up with measures of population pressure on resources. We were able to get measures of cultural complexity, punitive socialization, uh, low-need satisfaction in infancy, et cetera, from other researchers. But we set about to study, to try to measure resource problems. And we focused, we decided the best tactic was to evaluate whether people had overreached their ecological carrying capacity because it was impossible to know how much carrying capacity there actually might be. So we focused on three measures of resource scarcity, threat of famine, how many famines in the 25 years prior to the anthropological study were there, threat of natural disasters that seriously destroyed food supplies, how many in a 25-year time period. Drought, for example, is a major natural disaster. Could be floods. Chronic scarcity, how many are people um, don't have enough to eat normally? Are there hungry times of the year when there's not enough to eat? What we were amazed at, actually, was that all these things that we looked at, there were only two things that seemed to predict warfare well at all. We didn't find support for cultural complexity, for punitive socialization, for protest masculinity, nor fighting over women. The, the major predictor... By itself, natural disasters that destroy food supply, we call this resource unpredictability. And um, the reason is, the reason we're calling it unpredictability is pretty simple. Most natural disasters don't occur all the time. They might occur twice in a 25-year period. And the fascinating thing was that uh, it, when you look at a society's warfare pattern, those that had unpredictable natural disasters, they did not just fight when there were disasters or shortly thereafter. They were fighting all the time. Um, the other major predictor, but wasn't nearly as major with a correlation of like 0.26, was socializing children to mistrust others. So those were our main findings. Uh, I just want to point out to you some other evidence which it does seem to support the theory that resource unpredictability is 
the main uh, driver, possibly, of warfare. So some evidence from archaeology, some historical evidence, some meta-analyses. This, um, Steve Lexton is an archaeologist who actually amazingly tried to take our theory put forward uh, from worldwide research and test it in the archaeological record of the U.S. Southwest. One of the things I need to tell you to understand Steve Lexon's result is the reason we suggest we suggested that it wasn't actual resource population pressure or resource shortage, it was fear of loss of resources, as I mentioned, was because of the fact that they were fighting even when there was no actual shortages. Well, these two graphs, the graph shows the the brown is resource unpredictability measured by tree ring data, the the red is periods of warfare, which suggests remarkable correspondence in the U.S. Southwest. Patricia Lambert talked about uh, coastal Southern California, and as she mentioned, there was more higher uh, evidence of violent conflict in the period characterized by drought. This is from Korea, showing correspondence between environmental stressors and, and warfare frequency. There was only one time period when they didn't correspond very well. This is uh, from Bang Kang. And uh, there has been recently a meta-analysis of published in Science in 2013 by Solomon Siang, I don't know how to pronounce his name, H-S-I-A-N-G, who looked at 30, 60 studies with conflict data, set, different conflict data sets, ranging from interpersonal violence to intergroup violence. And he found that um, there was a remarkable uh, increase in any kind of violence whatsoever with deviations from normal precipitation and uh, deviations in temperature in, in, the, in his meta-analysis. Finally, uh, let me just summarize and say that, um, in my opinion, the, the warfare does not appear to be intrinsic to the human condition. If it were, we'd find as much in societies with stable resources as unstable resources. We suggest that parents socialize for aggression if they perceive their sons and sometimes daughters will go up, grow up in a world with warfare and they need to prepare them for it. Socialization for aggression, unfortunately, probably engenders more violence. And unfortunately, I think everybody seems to think that climate change is going to make things worse. So violence may become more likely, not less. If we want to end violence, we probably need to work harder to eliminate warfare but we have to want to.